0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Move, Breathe, Live with me, Wibbs Coulson, or sometimes my wife, Jenny Wren. Just a quick note to say that throughout this episode, myself and my guests sometimes do get a little bit potty-mouthed. There is the occasional profanity. So if you find that right now you need to listen through headphones, if you've got kids around or something else, then it might be an idea to do so or come back later to this episode. I hope you enjoy the episode and will let me know what you think. Today's podcast is brought to you by me. Uh, today's advert, I'm going to put myself out there. And I'm hoping that maybe if you enjoy this and you enjoy the conversations I have, you might well enjoy coming and joining me, my beautiful wife, uh, Spirit Wren, Jenny, um, on our online platform. We offer 11 weekly classes, which includes meditation, meditation, Breathwork, um, breathwork for people with long COVID. Um, what else? Just yoga and movement. Um, so, the movement is much more kind of body weight centric, trying to understand your body, somewhere between my anatomy and motion work, but put into a class and just working the hell out and making you feel like you've done some work. Um, so, it's 11 weekly classes for the price of just £15 a month. So, it's pretty cheap. Uh, not that you should ever look at it this way but it works at about 48p a class or something um so all classes are live and they're all recorded so if you can't make one live you can always catch up after um via the members only section on our website so if you're interested please do head to mandukya yoga.com manduky Oh, hang on. yoga <laughs> sorry m-a-n-d-u-k-y-a-y-o-g-a mandukiyoga.com forward slash b hash no just become a member in fact just ignore that just go to mandukiyoga.com certain in the top bar or come down as become a member come and join us like i say we've got a lovely growing community of nearly 100 members we Practice. There's early morning classes, there's midday classes, there's um, evening classes, something for everyone. And both me and Jenny get to teach you. So hopefully, it'll be something that you might be interested in. If so, come and join us over at MandukiYoga.com, and we will see you all soon. Enjoy the episode and we'll see you on the other side. And we are back again on another episode of Blue Breathe Live. I know why I'm singing but there we go um, back again hello all how are we what's going on How's life um, I asked that obviously just speaking to the ether because I'm recording this and hopefully you're just listening but hope you realize I am actually interested um, please do feel free to reach out and chat I'd love to hear from more of you who listen to this um, so today's episode, Was super fun. And it came about because, well, I've been following this chat for a little while online. And um as will be discussed in an episode between me and Jen at some point, maybe it's already been discussed, who knows? Um, kind of hormone health and the like came up. And I've found it pretty interesting, kind of the different narratives. It's really hard online to know where you're going. And so I came across Tomo, who I chat to today, and he has got a master's in endocrinology. So he does understand hormones, let's say, and he's currently doing a PhD in thyroid health and environmental toxins. And so we just dived into all of this and we start talking sort of females, sort of health and hormone health and menopause and all sorts of things and it's really 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 fascinating. Um so hopefully some of you will uh will dig it. And if you think it's of any use, if you listen to it and you think that someone might find it useful, please do um send it on to them. Uh because I because Jen has um I'm sure she won't mind me saying this. She has um spoken to Tomo, had some sessions with Tomo and it's been really really beneficial for her. Her energy levels um Just generally, her headspace has been much improved. So, yeah, by all means, share this on. Do reach out to Tomo. Go and uh, check him out. And, yeah, let me know what you think. Please do like, subscribe, and all of that jazz. Um, Please do go and leave me a review as well. I know most of you have listened already, but please do go and find uh, the Apple review spot and go and leave me a review or give me five stars or whatever on spotify because you can now do that all of that stuff really helps me um look like i know what i'm doing and like uh people should listen so go and do that and i'll see you on the other side enjoy the episode and we'll see you next time Welcome back, everybody. Um, another episode. I am here today with a guy. Um, I'm going to call him Tomo, because that's what he is on Instagram. But um, uh, Tomo, Keith, uh, Woods, and yeah, I'm just going to chuck it straight into you, if that's all right, mate. And you can perhaps say a little bit about yourself. <laughs> well, okay, good to <laughs> meet you. In. This is the
1: first time <laughs> we've met before. Yeah, uh, But uh, yeah, I've, I've been following you on in Instagram as well. Um, well, I I spent probably the last 20 years or more as a, a fitness instructor personal trainer 25 years probably I left the army in 1992 was lost for a bit fell into a gym instructor's job moved into a uh, gym in London Poma's place when it was around uh, many years ago uh, and then ended up going freelance trainer uh, have a small personal training business Omo uh, own my own gym hated it decided to <laughs>
0: such a common thing. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and went to uni, did a fitness and health degree. Cause I, I was also, I did a lot of the Czech stuff at the time, mm-hmm. um, and, and did some of the stuff out there with Paul and was working with, uh, John Boskill and his rehab clinic, which was nice as well as doing my own thing. Um, and then I just kind of fell into kind of more of the, the lab testing. I was doing physical therapy and rehab stuff. And then I kind of got uh, really introduced to Ray Pete's work around about 2010 i don't think it really started sinking into about 2012 really properly after reading it and his kind of ideas i was doing functional medicine and functional medicine testing metabolic typing all that kind of stuff and his kind of was the first person to kind of formulate problems of energy and digestion and sleep uh, fertility, mood, or in one kind of complete bundle. Um, and it really resonated with me. And his his references were, were books that I would go away. I would kind of really get into trying to re- buy as many old science books as I could. And he was citing people, Nobel laureates like Albert St. Georgie, who discovered vitamin C in 36. Okay. Uh, Eli Metchnikoff, who, again, another Nobel science laureate on, on phagocytosis and digestion and, and immunity. And his stuff is really coming back now uh katharina dalton a medical doctor who was the first kind of doctor to use progesterone for treating things like postnatal depression pms and all of that and i've kind of really delved into those references to get a better understanding and then uh 2016 i decided to do a a master's degree in endocrinology um doing a postgrad first they wouldn't let me do a master's because i didn't have any medical background so i had to do a postgrad diploma then did a master's Uh, And then in in 2020, when kind of all the COVID stuff hit, I was in Dubai and it was difficult for me to do my job because I've always been a a little bit of a lone wolf, like to be left to my own devices, rent my own space. But um, with all the licensing stuff there, it was was hard. So I decided um, two years ago just to jack it on the head to to focus just purely on the coaching, which I've been doing for six, eight years anyway, of just kind of nutrition and coaching without too much testing. Uh, And and now kind of just... uh, work globally with clients uh doing working on energy fatigue sleep digestion all this kind of stuff and also trying to do a part-time phd in how yeah. environmental pollutants affect thyroid physiology which to me if you understand what the thyroid does you have a pretty good understanding of, of how the body functions in an organized you know process yeah. uh, and that's what's really kind of motivated me the last few years is to, one to get a, be- a better understanding still And when you kind of start looking at all the in-depth research you realize how we you thought you almost knew something and actually you don't know anything
0: yeah just of... enough to fuck everything up and <laughs>
1: absolutely absolutely not to say that i kind of mess all my clients up and no it. no <laughs> uh, but there is there is a learning process where you kind of really don't help anyone and you help quite a considerable amount of people. And it's those kind of ones that you don't help. You kind of think, well, how, what, what needs to happen there? You know, it's yeah. like working with clients, whether you're PT or, you know, whatever you're doing, teaching yoga, there are some people that won't respond to certain movement where some people go, that's a really big bang movement where they really respond well to stuff. Right. Yeah. So whether it's breathing or posture or kind yeah. of less pain, and, and I think, you know, when you look at the complexities of, of biology, mm-hmm. um, you can get a better under, under, idea of how to help people. But those complexities of sometimes boil down to some very simple things. You know, when it comes to, say, changing digestion, using a raw grated carrot to kind of decrease the endotoxin, uh, get people pooping every day, which is, is you know, if you're not doing that every day and going back to that Eli Metchnikoff stuff back in early 1900s, he, he found that auto intoxication or kind of, killing yourself, poisoning yourself slowly from, you know, intestinal microbes that were kind of going into into the tissues uh and causing all sorts of problems, which you now know endotoxin is a big problem. And that's why constipation for a lot of people causes a lot of problems from a yeah. health perspective. So it, it's kind of I know I haven't really summed up succinctly, but that's kind of where I'm yeah, at no, lots definitely. of different things.
0: I mean I found um yeah some of the bits that you know there's a whole bunch I want to get into, but like just briefly in and around um, sort of straight off the bat, where your PhD is going with all of this, in and around the kind of the the toxins and the, and um, yeah, how those things are affecting us, you know, the kind of, I mean, there's so many in society and and, and, in the environment these days, the environment of toxins. um, I mean, yeah, I've read a a book called Countdown, or I listened to it, sorry, by, um, I want to say Shana Swan or something. And it's kind of a lot about how environmental toxins are affecting men, in particular men, it was more focused at, but with sexual reproduction and yeah. like n- the knock-on effects of how quickly the, as, as a, as a um, gender, the, men, the male gender's kind of loss of fertility is like literally just nose diving off a cliff and through to like phthalates, phthalates mm-hmm. like, and all bits and pieces like that. Um, which kind of blew my mind. And then again, I've kind of seen you've been kind of talking about these things as well. Um, And yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of scary that it's almost impossible to get away from it. It feels.
1: Yeah. The environmental or what we call the endocrine disruptors. Yeah. The hormone disruptors, they're ubiquitous and they have been yeah. for some time uh, and they kind of, they're part there because of <laughs> greed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> They're, they're part there because people just didn't know um, until you go and study some of the, the, the artifacts of some, of some of these pollutants and compounds, you know, big ones that we tend to see, phthalates if you hit the nail on the head, PCBs, brominated flame retardants, which are pretty much yes. everywhere in, in kind of, you know, furniture, furniture. When, when we fly, various materials. You've got the, the airborne pollutants, you know, combustible pollutants, which cause a particular problem as well. Uh, You've got things like, you know, Teflon, as an example, PFOAs, POFSs. That film. (laughs) And and it's a a great one. I remember looking at that kind of 10 years ago um, when the ruling came out against uh, DuPont, where where basically that whole town, they had to build a hospital to deal with the, 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 the kind of the artifacts of all of the injuries. And it's a big thyroid disruptor. And when the thyroid is disruptive, we know that cholesterol, blood sugar, brain function, ovarian testicular function all of them go out the window so you know coming back to whether you say to males you know females and, and males mm-hmm. fertility has been declining for, for a number of reasons and you know it can be even certain medications then cause offspring to be produced that have smaller testicle size or less ovarian function there yeah. there are there's 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 huge kind of uh, con- concepts of what could happen transgenerationally over time um and some of these have been assessed okay some of them have been assessed on the idea that there's a a high toxicity load that causes the problems yeah not many of the studies have gone and looked at what what happens when all these lower level molecules interact um no observed effect noted at these higher loads and so there are kind of more complex more subtle very intricate studies coming out where they look at the interactions of these molecules like a cocktail or kind of you know, toxic soup, as it were, um, that cause problems. And some of these kind of hormones are deactivated. Thyroid can be deactivated. Oestrogen, as we know, you've probably heard the term xenoestrogens, Mm. and that can come from all of these things, like a mixture of phthalates, PCBs, um, polycyclic, aromatic hydrocarbons which are these combustibles even you know things that come off rubber tires as an example or or brake pads as an example in the air and we end up breathing them in and you know then you perhaps come to your house and you've got your dishwasher on you open up all that steam comes out you can smell the cleaning product in there yeah and one of my uh, my somebody said if you can smell it it's already in your bloodstream and that's quite an interesting (laughs) point right so then you know, you go into various, you go to shopping malls, I'm sorry, I've just come back for the Middle East, so it's malls and stuff <laughs> like that. So, yeah, um, so you can smell that you go into the toilets, there's this constant endocrine disrupting sprays often being sprayed out. So to get away from this, you kind of have to kind of remove yourself sometimes from society to, to kind of understand, well, you know, what's it like with clean air outside? Mm. And, um, you know, how, how do you look at, and not to say that you can't get well in the environment that made you sick. I think for some people they have no choice, but to the extent you can understand what's making you sick and what's not. And so you kind of remove yourself to a space of regeneration. That's why your home as such should should be a cocoon, a place to regenerate.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think when it comes to the, the reproductive issues, again, my interest in thyroid hormone is I think is, is one of the key drivers because one of the reasons why women don't go full term, for example, is because they don't have enough thyroid hormone you create a relative amount of hypoxia, there's not enough progesterone, there are high amounts of oestrogen. We know that oestrogen is implicated in, you know, often, you know, uh, termination of pregnancy, unfortunately. Mm. Um, we know that's implicated in PMS, we know it's implicated in in cancer when it's excessive. Um, and to the extent this can drive estrogenization of men, you know, we see issues like gynecomastia, yeah. increased breast size, we can yeah. see, um reduced libido that can come in with with other kind of biological mechanisms that are implicated with say nitric oxide and low testosterone and all things like this so it, it gets complicated
0: and so with like say in the male side like is those um uh those environmental kind of doctors and stuff which can have that i've forgotten the words gone out of my head the xeno um xenoestrogens yeah xenoestrogens or what, is, are they the one is that what's kind of they pushing the men to be excess estrogen or is that just is there also just uh, you know stress and whatever else is also kind of affecting um say thyroid you know just society societal things and stress affecting thyroid which is then affecting an increase in estrogen compared to the testosterone or
1: yeah and it's, sometimes it's hard to get the kind of real
0: the root cause the, is yeah the...
1: I, I think it is because all these multiple you know um roads of stress converge whether it's kind of exposure to blue light being sat at a computer, inactivity, uh, emotional stress, you know, environmental stresses, pollutants, mm-hmm. you know, say perhaps what would be the effects of, say, I don't know, you wake up in the morning, you get up, you have a sip of water from your plastic bottle. Perhaps you've got well fluoridated, fluoridated tap water, as an example. You're kind of eating foods with different, you know, let's say, and it's hard to kind of, because they just add up, you know, yeah. if you're eating a high amount of foods with GMO, do we know how much glyph- glyphosate, glyphosate is, yeah. is, is, is going into, into the foods? And then you're kind of frying your, let's say your um, frying pan that's Teflon is chipped and it's kind of leaching different aspects of PFOAs. Then you're going to brush your teeth with certain things. Then you're spraying on different chemicals that, you know, um, yeah. that yeah, might yeah. have an effect. Where does it all come from? Then you go and walk out and you're in a city and you're breathing in diesel fumes. PM 2.5 particulate matters, where, where is it coming from? But I, I think that the combining effects of multiple pollutants, stress, um, learned helplessness um, mm-hmm. from, from these multiple stresses, converge to create decreased function. So that might be decreased thyroid function. We know the testicles don't work as well. Uh, we, uh, we know uh, you know, perhaps erectile function doesn't work as well when we have decreased thyroid hormone as well. If we think about the concepts of low thyroid function, it can present in, you know, contrasting, (laughs) but also juxtaposed kind of um, aspects of function, it can be gaining weight or inability Mm. to gain weight, it can be anxiety or depression, it can be high blood pressure or low blood pressure, Mm. especially when you start to see high levels of estrogen come in. So, it becomes confusing for a lot of people, even medical practitioners to get a, a solid diagnosis of thyroid function. That's my belief. And that's yeah, certainly, yeah. certainly the belief of many uh, clinicians and physicians, doctors who, who've who kind of looked at this. Um, and you've got to go back and look at some of the older data pre pre blood, some of the blood tests that are introduced in the seventies to get an idea of how it used to be diagnosed and how it's being diagnosed now.
0: Yeah. Cause I think that's definitely something which, um, you know, I've heard you kind of chat on some of the other podcasts that you've done, but the the idea that you know, there is some papers. People thought that you know, there is a five to ten percent um, group of people who are perhaps hypothyroid. There is you know, there is other thoughts that maybe it's twenty. There is other thoughts that maybe it's up to fifty percent of like the, of the population is. So, yeah. if there is such a wide ranging of like thoughts about potentially who could be, I mean, it must you know. It, it, from a medical perspective, it's uh, well, you know, I was I was chatting with a well, I say chatting, discussing with a medical doctor on Instagram the other day, but he was saying, well, you know, this is always our thought, I was like, yeah, but that doesn't happen in practice. That might be your thought process, but actually, in practice, you have seven minutes to see a patient. Mm. So, what do you do? You kind of go, okay, we'll do some bloods, and then we'll see what happens. And the bloods come back, and you go, that's fine, that's normal. Um, off you go. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. You know, how many times you've run the blood test, but have you said, OK, have you been eating on a regular basis? What's your sleep like? Um, mm-hmm. Are you are you using exercise as a tool to either bring yourself back up to normal function? Because, you know, people can do excess amounts of exercise mm-hmm. and that has a specific effect on on thyroid uh, presentation. So if you're kind of under eating and over exercising, what you're going to see is normal thyroid blood tests for a lot of the time because you're so used to you might be training in a fasted state. You might be ramping up. Uh, adrenaline and cortisol which suppresses thyroid hormone particularly tsh and appears completely normal really? so there are a number of ways that the blood tests can be kind of you know made to look normal and and if you're kind of just like you say you've got seven minutes to assess someone and you said okay well, what are you eating uh, for breakfast on a regular basis Do, are you getting good night's sleep was your sleep broken because all these again you know one of the when your sleep's disrupted over time, there's an, an intricate relationship between developing um, sleep disturbances and ho- hypothyroidism all the time because you constantly suppress T3. Uh, sometimes TSH should come up, but again, to determine how stressed someone is will dictate whether that pituitary production of the thyroid stimulating hormone, which is there to support thyroid, when it's not being Produced and assimilated normally within the body so again it's it's like how do you how do you qualify whether the test is accurate if you're one not looking at the clinical presentation effectively because a lot of people don't i'm not saying that yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. and i'm not saying everybody does that but you've got seven minutes and you're listening to okay i'm really fatigued okay we've run a thyroid blood test it can't be that but I, i'm feeling really fatigued and i feel really low and sometimes i get really anxious as well Uh, Well, your thyroid bloods are normal. So it can't be that. It must be something else. And the amount of clients I've worked with who've been told by a doctor that it's all in your head is mind blowing. And Mm. and that's, that's something that seems to be commonplace. And I I think if we can get back to um, listening to people, I mean, I think the, the initial consultation and that's why i think coaching works well with some people right because you can sit down and you can get an idea i review lots of forms which you kind of in the forms that i have yeah yeah and it's there so you can kind of tick stuff off the list get a historical uh, artifacts i mean going back to females i find one of the most common issues around pcos is disordered eating when they're a teenager if you're not well, yeah, looking yeah. at that and yeah. not understanding where that's come from trying to get an intervention to, to to resolve that and bring back organization in the body um it, it, it's hard and i can understand that being a doctor is hard because you have such a small amount of time so you know i can, I can and, sympathize with that
0: and as you say if if you have that theme of you know we've kind of briefly mentioned it before we came on but the idea of if you've gone in to see the gp and you're kind of like i'm really tired all the time like i'm not sleeping well uh you know i'm kind of I feel anxious and whatever else then immediately it's kind of like, well, you need to go to some SSRIs and it's immediately kind of like let's stick you on antidepressants. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, from my perspective, I, I don't know, as a nurse and whatever else, I kind of, it's always been one of those things. It's really easy as, as medical people to you do your training and it's essentially, you know, as much as people will tell you, that's not really the way it is. It kind of is just like give them a pill, send them home type thing. Yeah. And then, I remember listening to Johan Hari's book "Lost Connections" about kind of um, uh, like antidepressants and whatever else, and it really kind of opened my eyes to, for one, some some slightly dodgy kind of uh, <laughs> research results and how they're presented, and absolutely, um, yeah, and and then also, do you know what I mean it's just. In how many people are stuck on them because it's kind of well you feel sad and serotonin we think is like a happy drug so therefore we'll give you that and that will make you happy and it lasts for six weeks eight weeks two months you know six months uh oh it's run run out we'll have to give you some more we'll have to give you some more we'll have to give you some more and
1: yeah yeah i i, I think the the serotonin thing is something we could talk about for for a long time it's like there is zero research that that really kind of identifies that low serotonin is the driver of depression mm. um it's it's scandalous and there are some really good papers there's serotonin upper or down which is a really good paper there's the book drugs for life by joseph dummit um uh and the idea that serotonin is low and the idea that serotonin is a happy hormone which is not it's not a hormone it's a neurotransmitter and we know that serotonin is elevated in the stress response. Yeah. So we know serotonin stimulates the adrenal cascade. So when you, people get stressed and run off adrenaline, this is just one of the, the implications of serotonin. We actually probably want to keep it on a very measured low level. We need mm. it because it's a neurotransmitter. Yeah, yeah. But you know, people make the mistake that serotonin is needed to get you to sleep, and it's been shown in studies quite quite a few years ago, or, or within the last twenty or thirty years at least. That serotonin is a wake on neurotransmitter. It wakes you up out of deep sleep. So you see people going, oh, you need to raise your happy hormones, your serotonin levels. It also helps you to get to sleep. It's like, it's a wake on transmitter. It will wake you up out of deep sleep and stop you getting back to sleep. So some of the Mm -hmm. reasons why you can't get to sleep is this high adrenaline, high cortisol state. And then again, if you can't regulate your blood sugar levels efficiently during sleep, you will stimulate serotonin, often adrenaline and cortisol to break down fatty acids of fuel because you can't regulate glucose. Your liver is impaired. You know, it's kind of like you could argue. I don't like the term pre-diabetic state, but it's you just can't use your liver and the ability to regulate glucose efficiently. So I I think that particular problem, I mean, that's why one of the initial side effects from from, um, SSRIs was insomnia. I mean, I think they've kind of tweaked some of them now, but again, still some of them cause insomnia. So that yeah. shouldn't come as a surprise that serotonin keeps people awake. Keeps
0: people awake. So, yeah. and,
1: and, you know, I, fact, I think the fact that for some people it can take, they think, a couple of months for some people to work. And you might even be able to argue that the reason why that's having effect, if you're keeping more serotonin around, the body will have a, a way of trying to increase transport of that out of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and serotonin is it's one of the largest metabolizer uh, metabolism sites of serotonin is at the lungs so your lungs have to work extra hard to, to get it, rid of serotonin uh, and you might see all these other kind of artifacts going on
0: and then also i guess in and around that and it kind of brought up um i know i've heard you talk about it previously and one of the things i love to chat about and whatever else breathing and whatever else and effective mm. efficient uh res- respiration and you know if you've got, say, that issue and your lungs are having to work harder, there's, there's a strong chance you're going to end up like hyperventilating. Kind of technically, you know, you're gonna even if you're not, you know, you're still probably going to be breathing faster and heavier than is normal for you. Yeah, um, you know, and then again, going back to blood sugars as well. I mean, there's a, a guy, uh, the diabetic. I forgot his name now uh Breathing diabetic or something like that. Anyway, he's kind of he's basically just finding all 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 of these research papers showing just exactly how much control of your blood sugars you can get just through breathing slowly. Essentially, yeah. do you know what I mean? And um
1: yeah, well, you. Yeah, I mean, the, the mechanism behind that is is not. I would say it's reasonably simple, but people don't often uh, appreciate the value of carbon dioxide and its mm, ability absolutely. to help you to to regulate glucose efficiently. And it's actually bag breathing is something I use with clients for better sleep. Because if they're waking up in the night, that kind of component of blood sugar regulation, if you kind of prime the system with more carbon dioxide throughout the night, the less likely you are to wake up for that kind of nighttime pee. Because for some people, you're you're ramping up a little bit of adrenaline and cortisol, and cortisol yep. is going to make you pee, right? Um, So it's it's uh, it's 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 a game changer for some these simple kind of things that we can do. But yeah, I think I think you know when it comes to working with people, whether it's kind of resolving the the stress of the environment, there are simple things like like carbon dioxide regulation and you know um, eating certain foods um and dispelling the idea that carbohydrates are bad for people and yeah at- actually that they're, they're, they can be very protective even simple table sugar can be protective uh in the right amount so um it's just you know there's a minefield for people out there and they're that they're, they're told many different dietary fads that will help out and some of them do help out in the short term but when you try and apply them chronically they they can be a disaster
0: i mean i think that's uh i think that's so with any of these things i mean let's face it at the moment i think that the two cool diets, it's literally they're opposite ends of the spectrum, but you've kind of got veganism. We're in, well, we're not that way. We are still in January, but everyone's gone vegan for January type thing. Or we've gone the opposite way of like carnivore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, both ends of the spectrum, people end up getting good results to begin with because they just, it's an elimination diet, for want of a better word. You just cut yeah. everything shit out. Um, but people don't seem to be able to like... No one can find the centre hey, these days. Everyone's <laughs> yeah. got to be extreme.
1: Well, I guess it also comes back to kind of what people's goals are and are they realistic? Because a lot of people are obsessed with, with body weight and achieving mm. this perfect figure, right? And sometimes people have pushed themselves into a hole and they'll just bounce from diet to diet. And I I've 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 used the term zone of dogma creation because in the first few months, people will go, mm. I'm doing carnivore, I've dropped this much weight, my sleep's better, my digestion's better flip that around i've gone vegan my sleep's better my digestion's better i've dropped a bit of weight And it's like when you flip a diet you, you, you will create some different changes for some various mechanism and they could be vast um yeah. but you know if you're eating lots of carbs and you cut down on carbs and you, you kind of push the body to deplete glycogen from the liver you're, you're going to lose some water weight with that for an example yeah but you know it's 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 trying to work out then people try to apply it and then there's sort of three months here or six months here and it, everything starts going to pot and i've seen both veganism and carnivore produce the same things hair loss sleep yeah. sleep issues digestion issues um and you know you, the, the digestion thing is an interesting one because people then start blaming lots of different things like gluten and dairy and, and I think dairy wanted to get onto this yeah yeah
0: i really want to get onto this
1: yeah, I know. I think like dairy. I think dairy is a true superfood. I think it has an abundance of nutrients. I think it's uh, one of the best ways to get calcium levels up, which is super important in a dietary world where we're very high in phosphorus use of phosphates. So if you're eating lots of meats and cereals and kind of vegetables and. And, and other foods it can be very high in this kind of phosphorus and you need a high calcium ratio if you don't get adequate calcium in you can you start to increase something called parathyroid hormone and this can be implicated in calcification of tissues because calcium okay. is absorbed from the bone but it's dysregulated it goes into the bloodstream and it just goes everywhere yeah and so getting enough adequate calcium in the diet can be a challenge for some people but then people say well i don't do that well on dairy uh, and there can be a couple of reasons for this one is your digestive system is so stressed out and that can begin in the brain for example you just and it comes back to thyroid again is that you don't start producing enough salivary enzymes and when you go into the stomach you're not producing enough hydrochloric acid and then the hydrochloric acid once it's breaking down the food isn't enough and you don't stimulate the pancreatic enzymes lipase protease etc. So you start getting all this kind of this bolus of food that hasn't been pre-digested properly. And that could come from just slowing down our lifestyle, right? Yeah, yeah. chewing. Sitting at a computer screen (laughs) munching away. Remove yourself from it think about how tasty your food is think about the smell of it sit down and get used to oh oh, this is going to be a really nice meal yeah um and not a lot of people do that so you know i come back to thyroid but literally just could be just removing yourself from kind of the daily kind of stresses of work and stimulating the digestive processes but then again we come back to the digestive system and this can can also kind of converge with the aspect some people eat kind of dairy products with a lot of bacteria and lactobacillus and stuff and it's it's it it's fine for a lot of people but in some people it can cause problems um some some dairy products have something called carrageenan in, or locust bean gum or arabic gum uh and these gums and and carrageenan in particular can irritate the digestive tract because they just don't break down properly
0: so is that like they're just in like let's say certain sorts of cheeses or are they is that does that come from like the the processing
1: but no, it's in, it's that they're, they're there just to keep them more stable so they don't degrade over time. So that's why it's much better to have your kind of cheeses that don't have anything in, um, you know, uh, so these gums are there to preserve the, the cheeses for a longer period of time, emulsify them as well. Mm-hmm. So some of your kind of cream cheeses that you see, I'm not going to use yeah. any kind of brand names, um, <laughs> But it's better to go for a cheese, like a hard cheese, like a pecorino or a parmesan or gran Perdano, something like that has nothing in it to start with dairy products like that. And often you find that people don't have that issue. Milk can irritate some because it's very high in the amino acid tryptophan. And if you're not getting enough glycine within the diet, high tryptophan can cause some digestive irritation because serotonin's precursor amino acid is tryptophan. So, okay. if you've got an irritated bowel, most of the most of the the body's serotonin levels are, are, are produced in the gut. They or found in the gut as well. They reckon up to ninety five to ninety seven percent. So, this can be an issue too.
0: That's one of uh, the uh, that's one of the numbers which like everyone loves to bandy around. That like uh, the the serotonin being high in the gut, so you need to sort of sort that out so you can be happy in your head.
1: <laughs> well, but, but, but this is the thing. I, I'm not too sure. So it's kind of yeah. Um, it's a happy hormone that they want to increase in the brain, but they've got abundance of it in, in the gut. So, yeah. you know, go figure with that one. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think it's – and if your, if your digestive system is stressed, you know, in, in the, the villi, microvilli, you produce the enzymes that break down lactose. Uh, uh, yeah, lactose, which is lactase. And yeah. So if, if your digestive system is damaged, there can be certain environmental pollutants. We can have preservatives like nitrates or nitrites that cause – uh, reactive nitrogen stress, like just like oxidative stress, yep. and again, this can go somewhat to kind of you know damaging the bowel, and then we kind of drink a glass of milk and we start getting all funky. You start producing a lot of gas, mucus, and stuff. We go, it's the milk's fault. It's go, but well, it's not the milk's fault. It's probably your fault right now.
0: Yeah.
1: And if yeah. you do something to to, <laughs> to work on that, I mean, you should see the client's face when they start eating ice cream again. I had ice cream. It was amazing. <laughs> uh, and, you know, even yogurts and a lot of the commercial kind of yogurts and supermarkets have these kind of additives in. And it's kind of looking at the label and going, right, there's an intestinal irritant in there. I shouldn't be eating that because it's yeah. going to cause problems. But getting dairy in your diet
0: can be try great. Get to- some, yeah, yeah, because we are going to find some raw, like local, like milk yeah, and go- that kind of thing.
1: I think there's various kind of... uh tenets for each person some people do well with raw and the bacteria in there some people have an issue with bacteria and would do better on pasteurized I'm not too fussed about homogenization because your your kind of body will do that naturally anyway. It, will, it yeah. will multify fats to get them the right size so they can pass into the body and, and be utilized efficiently. Yeah. So I, I think it just depends on what is best for each person. And I don't get me wrong, I like a, a good raw cheese, like a, a nice rebuchon or something like that. And I do pretty well on dairy. I used to think dairy was a problem for me. Oh,
0: um, but
1: it. yeah, but not you it. know, dairy can be a reason why you don't sleep well um, yep. if you don't have enough in because you haven't got enough calcium in and going to foods like kind of kales and other other things like that which need to be well cooked because they have you know plant toxins in which can disrupt aspects of the body again going to foods like that all the time can be problematic and getting dairy in the diet um perhaps some people the, the idea is around you know farming and i get that um i i would always advocate sustained local farming where you can uh, with good animal husbandry. Yeah. Um, I think it's the big kind of huge, big kind of yeah. industrial farming that causes the problems. Uh, and For every that, that, always, do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Whatever that, it is. Yeah, I believe that needs to change. But to say that we should, should be eating kind of dairy and, and meat products doesn't make any sense to me from a physiological perspective.
0: No. Um, nice. Well, kind of in and around, I kind of almost want to jump back a little bit to the thought around each because this is something mm-hmm. that... Um, Uh, you know, I've been discussing with my wife and other people quite a bit recently. Um, but the idea, so it kind of feels to me a little bit like maybe it's changing a little bit, but in and around kind of the menopause, it feels like you need to go and have like to get more estrogen, essentially Mm. that kind of, I know that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but it feels like that's kind of what tends to happen now I've kind of, you've mentioned it briefly today, but I've heard you talk about it on some of the other bits and pieces that I've listened to you on, but like, potentially the idea is like, we, we, we might not actually be needing like more estrogen, like in and around that kind of, that perimenopausal thing. And it could, you know, it, you know, maybe I've heard you say this wrong, but is it, is there a chance that we, the women are potentially feeling like they are perimenopausal and whatever, it's not purely because of by estrogen, but perhaps there is already an abundance of estrogen. And then going and having more estrogen might not be actually mm. the, the goal. Yeah.
1: I, I think it comes back to kind of again, you you look at kind of uh large corporations that have perpetuated the estrogen deficiency myth. Um and I think it's worth just kind of getting people to think about progesterone and estrogen, and you know, uh, although sex hormones is probably a bad idea because Or a bad name because men produce estrogens and progesterones Mm. as well on some level. But if you think about most women who suffer from PMS, it can be usually entangled with eating and high oestrogen to a degree. Again, even if you look at some of the popular women's magazines, they perpetuate the myth that progesterone is the issue primarily because some women have issues around about the luteal phase time when they should be producing more progesterone. But actually, the idea that they're not producing enough progesterone and estrogen is driving the negative responses. So if you think about edema, swelling, puffiness, cramps, irritability, when you get an an excess of estrogen, these, these, can cause these kind of negative responses associated with PMS. Now, if we extrapolate that to, say, the menstrual cycle, if you think one of the reasons why, as I said, women don't go full term is because estrogen can be quite high. It creates relative hypoxia and there's not enough progesterone around. Progesterone, whilst it can be used as a, say, it can be used quite successfully as a a contraception, but it, it sometimes if it's a synthetic progesterone causes problems. So if you come back to the idea of natural progesterone, when your ovaries start to kind of decline, as an example, you stop producing estrogen, you stop producing progesterone. Now we know that progesterone and certainly my experience. And, and again, my, I take my lead from, you know, the likes of Ray P, Katharina Dalton and others is that progesterone is a very protective hormone um, and it prevents uh, it prevents many things. Postnatal depression. It pre- prevents um, miscarriages. Um, it, I was going to say, I
0: heard you break that down, and there's like pro gest.
1: Exactly, right. and, and really it, like it, yeah, and, and that's the thing is a lot of people kind of just use that in its reduced term. It's not just a progestational hormone. Mm. It has very, very many pr- protective properties, uh, and so if you think about, it, as your ovaries start to decline, is it just estrogen that's declining as well? No, it could be progesterone and progesterone Mm. can be very, very protective. Not to say that all women don't experience some estrogen loss that could be problematic, that, that does exist. But for any woman that has any amount of adipose tissue, you're often producing aromatase, which converting, you know, other hormones like testosterone into uh, estrogen and potentially progesterone as well. So the thing is, is that if you think about that, if you're, Taking away a hormone that protects you in pregnancy and protects the fetus in pregnancy, and you're just going for the hormone that's associated with, in the menstrual cycle, you have the follicular phase and the luteal phase, yeah. as a basic idea. In in the follicular phase, you get an abundance of estrogen, and its role is proliferative response in the uterus. It's there to get the uterus ready for uh, for implantation, uh, and so to progress pregnancy. Now, if you have sustained proliferation. We know that, and, and I'm not trying to say, use these two words as kind of like end ranges and kind of fearful words. Proliferation and unrestrained proliferation is what goes on in cancer. Mm-hmm. So when we have an abundance of estrogen, if that's not kept in check by progesterone, and particularly not just the luteal phase, there should be progesterone being produced during the follicular phase. The corpus luteum, which is abundant in progesterone as well, it should be secreting progesterone. Mm-hmm. And it's there to keep the, the, the egg quality going so that it, a woman can get pregnant. Now, it has that effect and it also has the effect on the uterus as well. So it keeps in check the proliferative phase of oestrogen. And that's why when it's not kept in check, we can see fibroids, endometriosis, polycystic ovaries. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. And, it, and, and it's the same thing. When you get, come up towards menopause, if you're not producing enough progesterone, that might be the primary issue that needs to be sorted out here. And as I said, it, and I use the, the point about any kind of fat tissue. We even me- measuring estrogen in the blood is a really bad way to do it because we just don't know how many are in the cells. And even when we're kind of looking at something like a fancy Dutch test, we really not get an idea of estrogen within the cells. So it can have many different effects. And you know, the, one of the common themes associated with excess estrogen is, is this edema, it's the swelling, irritability, uh, menstrual migraines is a, is a, a very okay. key one as well. And sometimes when we start to see things like insomnia, um, it's not necessarily because we're losing oestrogen, or say we, in the female <laughs> sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it could be because you're not be using, uh, not producing enough progesterone. And and again, if you're not you know going through the menstrual cycle you're also not producing the corpus luteum this very kind of rich structure in progesterone Um, and so it might that might be the primary reason we're getting the negative features associated with insomnia and hot flashes sometimes it can be the adrenal glands trying to produce more progesterone when the ovaries are failing Uh, i've seen quite a few females who are who are deemed um, premature ovarian failure or even been suggested that in the ages of 30 and it's usually just it's not that it's just the stress that they're under it's mm-hmm. the malnutrition nutrition that they're under and you know when you can i've seen female clients in their early 30s early late 20s we've had hot flashes and they've been told that they're going potentially going through menopause and it's like they're just running off adrenaline and cortisol so much these hot flashes production of nitric oxide this vasodilation makes them all red and hot and flushed. And, you know, when you get them pre- stopping eating more food, producing more progesterone, this can often just... It, it,
0: Cause, it, especially around that kind of age, I guess there's a lot of women uh, constantly worrying about their uh, their weight, their size, whatever else. So they skip breakfast. They probably just live on coffee for breakfast and, um, you know, have <laughs> a, a small salad for lunch. And, yeah. and, and you, do you know what I mean? So you're actually kind of yeah, not really feeding yourself. You're probably getting... Well, not enough not enough calories, but somewhere near enough calories to make you not want to pass out, but not yeah. really enough to actually feed you.
1: Yeah, and that's why they often blame caffeine as well. So I don't have coffee anymore because it makes me jittery. But it's like, it's, you know, what do you expect when you, you don't have any fuel in the tank? You, you're yeah. taking uh, essentially a metabolic stimulant um, that's going to rev up your system, and if you don't have enough glucose available, you have to break down fats. How are you going to do that? Well, you're going to produce Stretch more adrenaline yourself. and cortisol, and that's why I say, "Oh, I don't drink coffee anymore," but coffee is actually very, very protective, um, and I think it should be considered for for menopausal women as well.
0: Nice, nice. Um, well, the next one's more about me, really, because like, uh, and it'll be interesting because you've obviously just spent the last ten years or so in the sun, but um, <laughs> I. I found that when I went to India, so i i pr- previously to go to India eight years ago, um, uh, autumn, my favorite time of year, loved it. I went and spent like mm, six months in the sun. So I didn't even do 10 years. I did six months. <laughs> um, but ever since I've come home, man, like seasonal defect- affective disorder, like yep. I've never been diagnosed, but I just know, man, I get fucking grumpy like and like i well struggle with the darker nights and uh whatever else and um i've heard you talk about it and i think it's a well a pretty fascinating uh subject and one which i think certainly in the uk probably many people do struggle with um and again we come back to the thyroid i think on this one don't we
1: i I think there's probably a couple of things but i think thyroid and lack of light is, is mm-hmm. probably the key driver. I mean, you can probably, most people can understand that the idea that when you have a lack of light, whether it's UV, you know, the thyroid kind of has vitamin D receptors in it. So there's a relationship through that. When we don't have enough red light, orange light, yellow light, these kind of spectrums that also help to kind of rev up mitochondria and produce energy, that's a factor as well. We also know that kind of as it gets colder and and darker as well, we don't have this stimulated process on the body, but the thyroid maintains how we produce energy efficiently. And when we get cold, we, we need to kind of increase thyroid hormone. So some people can go into this kind of subclinical state of low thyroid function. And if you think about it, feeling colder, perhaps... Um, I mean, everything about low thyroid is sometimes just slowing down in hypothyroidism. So you see kind of things like, you know, not much motivation, wanting to stay in bed, wanting to hibernate, which is probably part of the hibernatory process in mammals. We're geared to maintain our body temperature at 37 degrees. And if it's much below that, that you can have a rough idea that sometimes there can be many things, but the thyroid is a key regulator of body temperature. Um, and so, you know, as these kind of long, cold, dark days, that we can't maintain our function against that, a decrease in thyroid hormone, which will affect all levels of organisation, you know, mood, digestion, hair, fertility, libido, um, and, and many other tenets. Um, this, this can be a, an issue for some people. And, and I do think that if you are seeing these kind of low thyroid symptoms, it's often a need perhaps that you need more thyroid. Now, for some people, like spring, spring comes and it's like, oh yeah, great, let's uh, jump out of the hibernatory state, can't wait to get out there. I think you, if, if you're getting that, there, there may be just a need to work on some foundational principles, getting more liver in as an example, mm-hmm. uh, eating some thyroid-rich tissues, like you can get lamb neck and things like that, which have, you know, thyroid um rich tissues. Yeah. And some people just need more thyroid. And uh that's a contentious issue because there's been a debate raging for decades on when to treat and when not to treat. Um, uh, and I think sometimes people do need more. Um, and if we look at you know, quality of nutrition as well, there's less thyroid available in animals animals don't tend to be raised in in good environments they're kind of probably hypothyroid themselves you know and i
0: guess also those the the tissues the, the 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 meats and whatever else that most people eat these days are a flesh or you know rump whatever else it's not necessarily the the organs the, the the more nutrient dense nutrient rich kind of i guess even thyroid rich kind of things yeah. Yeah, this, I, yeah, really
1: and the organs as well. I, I don't take this the wrong way, but uh, mostly more females. than males tend to have an issue with eating organ meats. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they want to go the, on the supplement route, but getting a p- good piece of liver in once a week is a is a is a big bang for your hormones uh, conversion of progesterone. Often contains some thyroid as well. Um, uh, you know the vitamin A, the retinol content is protective on many levels from converting hormones, including thyroid protection of the skin um you know protection of the immune system um and so uh yeah it's uh we it's something we used to 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 kind of eat in regularly Foods, yeah. within yeah we'd eat the whole animal and the organs would never go to waste but some people balk at the idea when they walk past the liver yeah um but i'm just thinking okay, i've got some but, in the fridge right now I'm yeah I, I got lunch. some as well yeah <laughs> i'm just thinking okay onions bacon let's go
0: yeah yeah nice um Cool. Um, well, I mean, that's kind of, uh, yeah, something which, as I say, that kind of whole seasonal affective disorder kind of, I just, it, it, when I've heard you chat about it, it's really kind of like jumped at me because I feel like, uh, there is a lot of people who just kind of seem to never be able to get out of that, that, you know, that kind of hibernatory response. I mean, I kind of, uh, I once said to Andrew Huberman on one of his kind of ask me anything type things, I was like, so if you're saying we should be getting light at this kind of time in the morning, this time in the evening, as the sunrise and sunsets, et cetera, like that for the best chances of setting um, our circadian cycles and all this kind of stuff. Surely that means that we should just be like, like hibernating and not working as much in the winter, which he said, yeah, I guess, yeah, that's probably, that probably is the case, but. Um, well, I not-
1: think if you're getting the different spectrums of light, so in winter, if you want to stay up night working, have some red light on because that's mm. going to help. And then when that goes off, that's kind of lens setting your body up for for a sleep, so I've kind
0: of not really looked into the red light thing a huge amount. I know I've got a couple of clients who come and see me who kind of set up and they kind of do the red light therapy and stuff, yeah,
1: yeah, awesome. I think it's it's very useful just help get people out of the funk for sure, uh, and also very good with kind of just you know applications of uh from other things it can help thyroid, it can help energy, it can help scar tissue and healing yeah. um it works really, really well with something called methylene blue, um, uh, yeah,
0: yeah, I've heard methylene blue kind of um bandied around a little bit of recently i think um i think my th- guy you know as well gary ward kind of he's one of my he's my teacher but he's kind of mentioned methylene blue and i've checked him a few times
1: yeah mm. yeah no methylene blue is very very useful i've also i've kind of uh had a few people kind of ask me who had covid and you know application of it temperatures dropped like three degrees like from 99 fahrenheit these are american clients to 96 within the space of hours i mean it was, it was well touted as a, a kind of uh, viral inhibitor Mm-hmm. Um, quite a long time ago but it's got some very good uh, research in cancer studies Parkinson's, dementia, um anti-parasites um, you know so many different aspects
0: mm. Nice, well I mean we're kind of uh, fast approaching our hour which is crazy because it feels like we've been chatting for about 5 minutes so the podcast is called Move, Breed, Live but the idea being is that I kind of want to hopefully try and bring some information to people which they can act on in some ways they can perhaps take something away and you've mentioned a few bits and pieces you know running away to the hills and getting out of the (laughs) arena but beside that kind of thing have you got any anything simple that they can try to enact in their life that maybe they can they can educate themselves on they can Hmm. do to try and make themselves feel better anything along those lines really
1: well, I think if you've got some specific health issues, whether it's kind of like along the, I mean, I use questions of energy, digestion, sleep, mood, fertility, absence of pain. If you've got those, any of those issues going on, absence of pain can be a moot one because it can be related to kind of physical stress and, and other things, right, from injuries. But I think if, if you've got these and you want to understand why, taking your body temperature is one of the most, it's the easiest thing to do to get an idea of why you're not functioning that well. Okay, So so measuring your temperature in the morning as soon as you wake up in bed and then measuring it 60 minutes after a feed is a really useful idea because you get a fasted state and then you get a fed state. It can give you an idea if you're using your nutrients, if you're supporting your kind of body warming responses from a good feed. Um, So that's always quite useful. And sometimes doing the mouth for about two minutes, three minutes can be a good idea. And then the armpit for at least five minutes, sometimes a bit longer if you have, have to. But seeing the disparity between those two, your body temperature should be at 37 degrees and the core should be the same as the head. Um, uh, you know we, if, and if you're kind of prone to getting cold hands, cold feet, cold nose, some of that can resolve with a good feed. But if it isn't resolving with a good feed, then you kind of start need need to understand why you're not warming your body up. As I said, mammals maintain their body temperature at 37 degrees for a very specific reason. Uh, And when we start to go lower, even 35 degrees is is hypothermic. So Mm -hmm. we run off stress responses. So you often see a lot of people coming in, uh, say coming in, it's all by Zoom. (laughs) Zoom (laughs) Coming into the computer, um, uh, (laughs) who, who are running in the 35 degrees sometimes. And that's a good sign that you need to be looking at some deeper seated mechanisms. So, you know, people who are going to the doctors being told it's all in your head, take their body temperature, you know, to have a look at what what, what you should be. You should be about 36 and a half degrees centigrade on waking should go to about 37 degrees after a good feed. Uh, there's there's many things in the press that you've seen. I saw something that came out and said, Oh, humans' body temperatures are cooling. This could be an e- evolutionary advantage. I'm like, no, it's not. It's a, <laughs> it's a sign that we're decaying and degrading quicker. And hence why we're seeing kind of, you know, vast increases in cancer and heart disease, which which come with the, you know, the the kind of Bombardment of environmental pollutants and stresses. So, getting an idea of your temperature and your pulse rate as well. So, taking those two before and after can give you a good idea of where you should be, and if they aren't right, kind of get an understanding of what you can do to resolve those.
0: So, just on that as well. So, you—I've heard you kind of say, which kind of, in many ways, goes against what most uh, health, fitness, kind of longevity coaches or something would probably tell you of like, you know, heart rate should be, you know, most people seem to want their heart rate to be kind of high forties, fifties, because it shows how good a stroke volume I've got. And, you know, my heart's really strong and whatever else, whereas you've kind of, I've heard say, you know, from your perspective, kind of having a heart rate around like seventies or mid seventies would be a, a, a good place to find it.
1: I'd say 70 to 85. And that is uh, in complete contrast to longevity experts. Have to ask how old the longevity experts are, by the way. Um, Twenty-two. Yeah. So (laughs) I I think this is we we know that we can have a conditioning effect on the heart from doing regular exercise, but to the extent we know whether we're slowing it down or not, purposefully, we Mm. we have obviously the, the the changes to stroke volume and cardiac output. But if you look at hypothyroidism as an example. You know, even some of the studies are suggesting heart rates below 70 beats a minute are indicative of low thyroid function. Part of this is based on the idea of the staircase effect, which came around in the 1800s and was also kind of brought back into, not let's say the common eye, but into kind of some scientific circles again by the the researcher Albert St. Georgie, who did some really, really good research on physiology and cancer and vitamin C and organized water. Uh, And his idea was that the closer together that heartbeats are, the less likely you're gonna experience arrhythmias, fibrillations, and, and so with this constant regular beat, bang, 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 mm-hmm. bang, the heart, the staircase effect, it's increasing in function. So to the extent that we go slower and colder, if, if the thyroid is, is an issue, we know that atrial fibrillation is associated with hyperthyroidism and hypo. Uh, we know that kind of cardiac disease is associated substantially with low thyroid function, fibrosis of the heart, decreased ventricular function. Uh, We see um, issues related to kind of hypertension. We see increased in cholesterol values. And Mm -hmm. so this kind of whole idea of heart disease with increased cholesterol, increased hypertension, decreased ability to utilize blood glucose levels and then aggressive, you know, permanent fatty acid oxidation of, of uh, fatty acids in the heart. The heart should metabolize fatty acids, but it still requires a flux between glucose and, and fatty acids, just like the cells should be able to do that, um, Not non-heart cells, skeletal yeah. muscle and the like. So if you get this metabolic inflexibility that's mediated by low thyroid function, trying to, to tease out the fact of whether you're kind of hypothyroid or fitness adapted, but I still think the heart rate should be up around about the 70 beats a minute based upon this phenomenon of the staircase effects. There's a caveat. And there's some papers that say people who have for every 10 beats a minute above, I think it's something like 80 or 90 beats a minute, you start to see increases in mortality. And that makes sense to me on, on, on a slightly different level um, is if your heart's failing, we know we have the, the kind of adrenergic receptors in the heart. When you're compensating, your heart's, you're gonna produce more adrenaline and more cortisol. Now this can come around from a disorganized state when there's not enough T3. Mm-hmm. You can see, and it's, it's it's not commonplace, but there's quite a few papers that have suggested that cardiac surgeons, when they reperfuse the heart after doing arterial bypasses, is that they, want to, they add some T3 into the mix, primarily because it takes better, and it doesn't predispose the heart going back to more lactic acid production. When we produce more lactic acid, it's because the 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 the, um, the system isn't able to use glucose efficiently. Yeah. So we see this in failing biological states. So we want to switch from lactic acid production to more oxida- oxidative production uh, yeah. or, or, or utilization of, of both fats and carbohydrates, and particularly glucose. Yeah, So. Are we looking at the heart when, we see, when, when we're when we looking at these studies and suggesting a lower heart rate is good and the heart rate as it de- declines goes up 10 beats a minute? Yes. And above 90, we know that we're seeing some very kind of uh, cases that perhaps are associated with increased mortality. But in this optimal range, using the staircase phenomenon, optimal beats per minute, adequate organisation, less chance of fibrillation, less chance of kind of the fibrotic responses. We're seeing less uh, cholesterol uh deposits when we see uh the thyroid working efficiently we see glucose we see lack of metabolic uh, inflexibility so it it, it's it's really hard to be succinct about this and there's many uh, bits we could go off and talk about in tangents but that's why i believe the 70 to 85 beats per minute is a good sign of an optimal heart rate anything above 90 going well above that i think we, we can see problems and it's associated with the failing
0: heart yeah yeah, that's pretty cool then. So basically if you gonna have a look at yourself, basically get up in the morning, stick a thermometer under your tongue or under your armpit or both, and then take your heart rate, feel your pulse, and then do the same after food and see what's happening.
1: Pretty much it. And it's then, a good one. You can do it again the in the table. afternoon. <laughs> yeah, you can. I mean, I've put lots of free blogs and seminars yeah. out for people who want to get more information. Um, I've put lots of stuff in the, in the members area for people who want more help. And obviously, I, I do do some kind of coaching with people. But I, I'm always happy to answer questions from people.
0: Yeah, for sure. Amazing. Well, I think, while I note, there's plenty, plenty for people to go away with there. And as I say, if you can perhaps just let us know now, Anywhere that people can come find you. What's the best places to find you? And I'll stick them all in the notes.
1: Thanks, mate. Well, my website's balancedbodymind.com. I'm only on Instagram really as tomo.littlewood. There's a Facebook page, Balanced Body Mind. That's, that's pretty much it. I try not to spread myself too far because I don't like being on social media. No, um, shit, but I, you have to do it. So it's just a distraction from, from other things that work yep. and study. So. But oh, yes, I'm there. I'm often rambling on, on, on Instagram a lot.
0: Nice. And guys, if any of you have found this interesting and thought that what Tom had said it was uh, useful and perhaps you go away and help yourself. Um, he's also self-funding his PhD. So if you do find that all of a sudden this is lit some bulbs up for you and you manage to help sort yourself out and you want to go and bank him, perhaps a, a few little tips in his, in his PhD jar might be <laughs> handy for him.
1: That's very kind. Thank you for mentioning.
0: No worries. Cool. Well, thanks again for doing this. For me, it was fascinating. And I've literally learned so much from your page over the last, um, I don't know, eight months to a year. So yeah, keep it up because I love it.
1: Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Hopefully I make some sense most of the
0: time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. All right, mate. Well, I shall uh, catch you on the flip side. Perfect. See you soon.